Okay, um, I want to go ahead and get started. Um, why, why, don't we, uh, why don't we pray? And just ask the Lord to be, um, yeah, just to lead this time. Um, so let's pray. Um, God, we come to you this morning. It's not this morning. God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for the fact that you are present. And that your word is alive and that you are actively pursuing our hearts. And so we pray on this topic that you would engage us, that you would lead us. God, um, God, you know my heart and my desire here. And you know what I want to say and what I don't want to say. But God, ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think or what I have to say. But God, I want your words and your truth to reign. And so... um, God, would you just, would you lead this time? We need you. Um, would you guard our hearts? Would you show us the truth of the gospel? Um, it's in your powerful name that I pray. Amen. Um, so w- one of the things that I want to say from the gate is that I-, I don't know that it's really ever our practice to take like a particular sin and like address it as if it's like the ultimate or uh, more important um, because I think when you take a particular sin and say, we're going to address this, there's a danger to think that it's, it's worse than others, and I just don't think that, that you can argue that biblically. Um, and as I said this morning, um, uh, so there are three really valuable books that I really tackled in the past month. Um, Kevin DeYoung writes a book, What Does the Bible Teach About? Really Teach About Homosexuality, fantastic book. Um, there's several on the tables in front of you called uh, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, this is a... Uh, uh, Sam Alberry is a man who struggles with same-sex attraction, believe God's calls him to a life of celibacy. Um, and so he unpacks really what he believes the Bible to teach regarding uh, the idea of, uh, of homosexuality and same-sex attraction. Uh, very practical and also really good. Probably my favorite one um, is this one called Love into Light, the Gospel of the Homosexual in the Church. Fantastic book, and I'll probably quote from it a few times. Um, but one of the things that Kevin DeYoung says is that um, when it comes to cultural, like, like touch points, it's hardly wise to avoid what everyone else is talking about. And so I think that's, that's the point, um, is that we could begin to have some, some teaching around, and really our heart as pastors around um, what, the way we understand the scriptures and what we believe God has to say um, regarding the issue of homosexuality. Um, and so that's really what we want to do. Um, and he, hear this. Here's what's crazy about this topic is this isn't, this isn't just about like, like theory and theology. Um, this is about real people. This is about real lives, real struggles, um, real issues that are going on. And, uh, and so um, whether it's your coworkers or your family members or um, your neighbors— um, or yourself, um, we're all in this issue, and more and more and more, it's going to be, begin to define our culture. And so that's really why we, we wanted to do this time, is so we could think through, okay, how, who, do we, who are we to be? What does God's Word say? That's really what I'm going to tackle. Um, 
And then how are we going to respond to it? And that's really what Rick's going to tackle. And then we're going to answer a few questions um, that came in that people were, had asked us um, towards the end. And so um, if, if I get emotional at all, I, I just know my heart um, is really because there's real, there's real faces in my mind when I talk about this topic. Um, so like, even as a kid growing up, we'd go, to, we'd go to family dinners, and my aunt would bring her girlfriend. And I really learned how not to treat someone who lived a gay lifestyle because my family just, like, hated her. Um, and, and, and so, real people. Um, I sat down on Tuesday with a, with a good friend of mine who, for all of his life, has struggled with same-sex attraction. And he's trying to discern who God is and, and, and um, really believes that God's called him to a life of celibacy. He believes in the traditional view of marriage. Um, and I just sat across the table from him, and I just said, man, tell me how you view the gospel. Tell me how you view God in light of the fact that you believe that for the rest of your life, the distortion of your, your sin and the way God designed you that was destroyed by the curse of the fall has said that what you want, you cannot have until the Lord comes back. Like, how, how do you view God in light? And just, just amazing. One of the things he said to me was if... if if I wanted my life to be my own, I shouldn't have become a Christian. It's just like, wow, wow. Um, and then uh, for a number of years, uh, I walked alongside with a really good friend of mine who uh, has struggled with same-sex attraction, has lived a gay lifestyle for, um, for years, uh, and here's, here's where it really um, just bothers me, and, and I think the difficulty was that he grew up in the church, and for years and years and years and years and years, um, he was just, he's like, I can't talk about my struggles. Um, and I, I just remember sitting at Bread Company with him and just like, listening to his story and, and having him unpack to me the fact that for years he's just been in afraid of what will people think? What will people say? What's wrong with me? And he never felt like the church was a place where he could find hope and find healing and find the love of God. Um, really because a lot, a lot of... A lot of what our culture has said is, is this picture here. Um, I don't know if you can see that. Um, or that's, that's, that's the extreme side of the church. That the, when the culture thinks of the church, that's what they hear. Um, and so it's no wonder that you have a guy like my, my friend who... Is like, I can't be honest about what's going on in my world. I can't be honest about what's going on in my life. Because um, they won't have anything to do with me. Um, because God hates me. Um, and so I think really what I want to do is, is walk us through what does God really think about people? What does God really think about, like, what's his design? What's his heart? Um, one of the things that struck me in, in one of the books that I read um, was the fact that so many of the, the testimonies of of people in the church, of the transforming work of God, are of so-called acceptable sins. 
right? And so rarely ever do you, do you hear somebody get up in front and talk about same-sex attraction and talk, talk about a home, living a homosexual lifestyle and God saved them out of that. Most of like you have like, oh, I was a drug addict and God saved me out of it. And you're like, yes, praise God, you know. Um, I was a thief, or I was an adulterer. But then, you, like, you, for some reason, the perversion of homosexuality becomes this, like, the, an unacceptable sin that, like, you can't even confess. Um, and what's crazy is the Apostle Paul had that in his church. Okay, so in, in 1 Corinthians 9, or 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's addressing the believers in Corinth. And look at what he says. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, which is all of us apart from Jesus. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So he's looking at real faces and real lives. And I don't know if he's pointing, you know, like reviler and adulterer and homosexual practice. I don't know that he's necessarily doing that. But what he's saying is that there's people in his church that had testimonies of same-sex attraction, of living a homosexual lifestyle, and God changed their identity. And he called them to himself and said, you're a new creation. Um, Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that God will remove struggle. Or that because when you come to Christ, a person all of a sudden, like, will no longer, like, a person with same-sex attraction all of a sudden will no longer have same-sex attraction. Um, I would argue that's probably rarely the case. But um, look at this quote. I just love this from Peter Hubbard in his book, Into the, or Love into Light. I kind of just want to jump off with this before we go to Genesis. It says, he says this, What if homosexuality is not a threat but an opportunity? Could God use one of the most controversial moral issues in our nation to awaken his church rather than damage it? This requires a, um, a seismic shift in thinking, which some of us might not be eager to make. I find it much simpler to issue a commendation or a condemnation while keeping a distance, but we need a spirit-empowered love to move towards those struggling with same-sex attraction without despising or excusing their sin. Because their sin is our sin. Our hearts are not different. The question is, is are we willing to ask the Spirit to expose our own hearts? And will we risk our comforts to move toward the shadows in order to experience the light and love of Jesus with our hidden brothers and sisters? The way we answer these questions will tell us what we really believe about the gospel, the homosexual, and the church. Because if we're honest, if the church isn't a place for the sexually broken, it's not home for any of us. Any of us. Um, and Kevin DeYoung points out this. Um, oh, this was phenomenal. The church has long known the pain of persecution, infertility, betrayal, injustice, addiction, famine, depression, and death. The church is just beginning to learn the pain of living with unwanted same-sex attraction. For a growing number of Christians, it is part of their cross to bear. Um, and I, I just have a really hard time with believing um, that God, God sees, sees that differently. Um, even biblically, 
Um, and so the question then becomes like, will we engage and will we be a people that love? Um, and so let's, uh, let's talk about really God's heart and God's design. So if you have a Bible and you want to go to Genesis 2, I want to point out a couple things really about God's heart and God's design for sexuality um, from Genesis chapter 2. Um, let's pick it up at verse 18. And then the Lord God said, um, It is not good that the man should be alone. So he's created, the, he's created everything. Um, he's created mankind, uh, man out of the dust of the ground. And he says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he, he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So notice in this text um, that the woman is is divinely designed as a complement. Okay? She has sameness, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, but she's different. Okay? She's the complete opposite. So there's this, this complementarity in design and in creation where woman is taken out of man. Okay, so they're equal, yet they're distinct. They're equal, yet they're distinct. And then we see in verse 23, like the first song sung in the Bible where Adam's standing before his naked wife. Um, and he says, hallelujah. And then we come to verse 24 where notice it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But here, here's something I want you to notice, okay? In the midst of the equality and the sameness in creation, there's still a, a distinction, okay? And in this, in this passage, we see God instituting sex within the good design of marriage, okay? But check out what Kevin DeYoung says, how this gets twisted and distorted. He says this, the act of sexual intercourse, bringing a man and a woman together as one relationally and organically, the sameness of the part in the same-sex activity does not allow for the two to become one in the same way. Mere physical contact, like holding hands or sticking your finger in someone's ear, does not unite two people in an organic union, nor does it bring them together in a single um, as a single subject to fulfill a biological function. And then, then he goes on, and I think this is just phenomenal when you think about verse 24, because he says this, when Genesis 2.24 begins with therefore, or for this reason, it connects the intimacy of becoming one flesh with the complementarity of woman being taken out of man. So the man and the woman can become one flesh because there is not just a sexual union, but a reunion. So it's like, like God, God made them. God made her from him. And in sexual intercourse, there's a reunion of God's design. 
the bringing together of both of the two differentiates between uh, the bringing together of two differentiated beings with one with one made from and both made for the other. Now, we're not being told about this first man and first woman, you know, on the random chance that you're interested in, like, your heritage, right? We're being told about the first man and the first woman because, really, we see God's design in, in sexuality. Um, we see God's design in how he set up the pattern of humanity, for generations and generations and generations. Now, there's a whole lot of conversation to have about what do you do with singleness um, regarding, like, how do you handle the reality? And even you even have the Apostle Paul or you even have Jesus who was never married, and they didn't live less of a life, right? You have the Apostle Paul who said it's better not to. Um, and, and I wish I had a ton more time to get into this idea of, of how do we handle um, single people being accepted and loved and seeing their life as something God's called them to and designed them for. Um, but I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3. Because I think there's, when we talk about the fall, I think we miss something when we talk about the fall. Um, look, at, uh, look at verse 14. I'm put this up on the screen. It says this, the Lord God said to the serpent. So this is like um, the serpent deceives Eve, and in the midst of that, uh, she eats the fruit, she gives it to Adam, and the curse of sin is present. Okay? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Okay, so sin just didn't, didn't just bring a fall. It didn't just kind of mess things up. It brought a curse on everything. Cursed are you above all livestock. It goes on to talk about the curse. Um, curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, verse 18, it shall bring forth for you. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way when he says this. Um, that's not it. I guess I didn't put it in. Let me just read it. When sin entered into the world, it was not just a fall, it was a curse. The man, the woman, the serpent, the ground, all felt the sting of the curse so that not the way things are supposed to be became the way things are. Okay, so um, in, in the fall and in the curse, like we look out the world and, and we're like, this is not okay. Just talking about like evil in general. We could name hundreds of examples where we say, this is not okay. Okay? And because of the fall, the things that are, it's not the way they're supposed to be became the things that are, became the way things that are. And then you, then you see the plot line of Scripture play out where God becomes the rescuing hero to redeem an unholy people. Okay? Um, and so, think about this. Think about this curse. What does it affect? Everything from health to relationships, to desires, to motives, to sexual orientation. Okay, this is why I find it hard-pressed to argue that sexual orientation is a choice any more than I choose to be anxious when my day is going bad. 
right? It's like, so, like, my day's crazy, and it's like, you know what? I'm going to be anxious right now. I'm going to choose anxiety. No, like, the curse, because every person I've ever encountered with same-sex attraction um, on many levels has a disdain, particularly Christians, on many levels has a disdain for their orientation. There's a struggle. This is not who I want to be. Like, do you experience that? Even in heterosexual attraction, even in um, lying, stealing, dishonesty, your own issues. It's just like, oh, I'm going to get out of myself. Yeah. Absolutely. We're born into sin, Scripture says. That we come from the womb speaking lies. That's the effect of the curse of sin coming into the world is that everything is screwed up. Okay, which I think enters the, the conversation about, well, this is how God made me, right? Like, you've heard that argument. Like, if God's made me this way, then can I express myself? I think there's a whole lot of things to say about that, but um, I don't know that biblically, and even looking at Genesis, even looking at the fall, and even looking at Romans 1, you can argue that like, God's intent, like that, because if we come out of the womb broken and sinful and in need of God's transforming grace, there's a problem, and the hope and the cure is found in Jesus, right? And so we're called to run to him. So like if every good-looking woman I see walks down the street and I want to have sex with them, like, does that, like, if I just feel that, is that like, well, this is just natural, right? Well, no, that'd be a problem. Not only for my job, but for my marriage. Um, now, uh, let's go to Romans chapter 1. And I just want to hit something here fairly quickly. Romans chapter 1. Um, let's go to verse 24. Um, so in Romans chapter 1, uh, you have one of the strongest cases that the Bible makes um, against, uh, well, it's, it's, homosexuality is mentioned, but I think that what happens in Romans chapter 1 is we elevate the idea of homosexuality um, to be a more extreme situation um, when the argument that Paul's making, one, isn't a cultural argument, it's an argument from creation, which we're going to see in a second, um, and really what he's doing is he's using the the extreme example of homosexuality to illustrate man's idolatry. That's the issue in Romans 1, is man's idolatry. Um, so, uh, begins in 18 with the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteous and men who suppress the truth. And then j- jump down to verse 24. I think I have that on the screen. I'm still trying to get used to this whole running my own slides thing. Um, <clears throat> Therefore... God gave them up in the, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So he's talking about this idea that, that mankind um, takes the reality of who God is and begins to believe a lie that they can create a better life, that they can be a better God. It's the sin of idolatry. Um, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Um, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. So notice, like, uh, some have called this the passive wrath of God. 
right? It's like, have you ever prayed for something and then God like gave it to you? And then all of a sudden you're like, gosh, I didn't want that. Like, like, or, or the opposite happens. But like a lot of times God in his passive wrath might give us like, this is what you want. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have it to show you that it's not my intent. I mean, I mean, take even unbelievers in the unbelieving community would argue um, philosophically, psychologically, um, that the gay lifestyle, and there's lots and lots of studies around what happens around suicide, and I can't even name them all, um, and how it's harmful for human flourishing. Okay, so even thinking about Paul's argument here, let's just keep reading it. Um, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. There's what I was talking about, the passive wrath of God saying, okay, you want to try this? I'm going to show you this isn't what I have. Um, They were filled with all matter of unrighteousness. Now listen to this. Listen to this list that's unpacked here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. So like, okay, hold up. So it's like murderer, adulterer. You didn't make your bed. All on the same list. Foolish. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul, what he's doing here is he's really leveling the foot of the cross, the ground at the cross, and saying the issue isn't homosexuality, the issue isn't adultery, the issue isn't murder, the issue isn't making your bed. Um, the issue is idolatry, and the issue is I want to live the life I want to live because I don't believe that God is good and has a design for me. And when I talk about being a place and being a church that welcomes people with open arms, it's a welcoming with open arms to say, come and let's run together to understand who God is and how he's created us and designed us to be. Let's run together in his joy and pursuing his joy. Um, One of the things that I think is incredibly powerful is is the illustration in Scripture that's in Revelation. Um, In Revelation chapter, uh, I don't think I put it on there. In Revelation chapter 5, you have the illustration, um, and we really have a hard time with this, where Jesus... Um, is simultaneously a lion and simultaneously described as a lamb. Okay? It's like, how, how could someone be both? I think we have that problem with, like, God's omniscience, like, 
or, or God's like transcendent, but God's imminent. So God's really far away, and he's unlike us, and he's holy, but yet he's personal, he's near. It's like we have, we have a problem with those illustrations because like we can't be both, but God can. So think about this. I'm kind of stealing a little bit of Rick's, like how do we, how do we respond here? Um, and what do we know about a lion? What's a lion like? What? Scary. Ferocious. They have majesty and voice. What's a lamb like? Soft. Yeah, just sacrifice them. There's meekness and patience. Okay? Now, how could Jesus be both? I think about this, because I think this is profound when we think about what it looks like to be the people of God who live a life like Jesus lived. Because you have, you have two extremes. Like you have the Westboro Baptist Church extreme. Like you could go to their website right now and look at their picketing schedule. It turns out, I just saw this afternoon, that they're going to be at um, the Dome picketing Joyce Meyer. So if you want to join them, they have a lot of things to say about her. Um, and what do they do? Like their website is God Hates Fags. Okay, that's insane. It's insane. Like, you just read the homepage of their website, and it just breaks my heart. Um, it breaks my heart. So you have the, like, the, like the lion extreme. Well, then you have the lamb extreme. Well, there's a church in, in San Francisco. Um, their vision is radical inclusion. And their vision kind of statement is, we are queer people who seek to understand ourselves in relation to a God and many names or no name, a God of many names or no name at all. And one of their leaders, one of their board members, it said, uh, said that some of the best Christians I know um, are them, call themselves atheists. Okay, do you, do, you, do you see the, like, do you see the pull here? Where, God's calling us to be a people like Jesus that have a truth in the reality of here's who God is and here's what we believe how God's designed us. But then in the, in the meekness and in the humility to realize, listen, this isn't just a, like, stop, right? Like, it's just, there's so, like, I think that's the hard thing about this issue um, is there's, there's so many different scenarios and, like, the warped and distorted reality of sin is ever-present when we begin to deal with lives and we begin to deal with hearts and we begin to deal with how people are brought up. All of those different things. And yet, when we begin to think about what, what is the climate in our church— are we going to be a people that are like lion-esque and this is who God is? And or are we going to be a people that are like, come on, be whoever you want. We love you. Listen, both are unloving because neither are who Jesus is. Separate from one another. But when you bring the two together, you begin to see, listen, This here is a pursuit of 
joy. Right? And so when God begins to lay out his heart and his desire and his design, he's beckoning us in to where humanity will flourish. And where humanity won't flourish, he's like, don't, don't go there. That's not who I've called you to be. I don't want to be a people or a church that just beats people with this. And, and listen, let me say this. I love that we're not. I, I love, like Rick and I talk about that all the time. Like I love that we're not. Um, is that uh, I, I really believe that as a church, that's our heart. Um, is to be a people that would say, come on. We want to love you and we want to walk with you. Um, but I want to, um, Rick's going to come up and talk a little more practically about how this looks and the outworking of, of how to now respond and engage. Um, so I, I want to I talk about what, you know, Dave has laid stuff out for us, and I, like, I think it's the, uh, I'm loud, aren't I? Um, check out Rick knowing how to, where he's... <laughs> Yeah. Um, like looking around the room, I think we're, what, what Davis has laid out for us is, is, is good, but I think it, it's kind of all where, where, we, where we are, right? Um, and I think what I want to put in front of us is maybe even redundant a bit from stuff you've, you've heard from us. Um, but I want to... Uh, like challenge us and, and, and push us towards how we engage the culture uh, because this is a this is a vital thing for us to to know how and and what to do and so I want to throw this up there and I know that the the screen the sun is, is kind of killing us here um, if you've been in a part of our membership class you've seen this before uh, this was a di- a diagram that was put together by Leslie Newbegin uh, about 150 years ago. Um, and the idea is the gospel is on top. And this kind of serves, if you've been a part of a membership class, this is what we talk about during a missiology section, uh, how we engage mission, how we engage what God has called us to do. And the gospel is on top. And we then take the gospel to the culture. And then we take a, a gospelized culture to the church. And then that's reminded ourselves of the gospel when it comes to cycle of gospel church, or gospel culture church, gospel culture church, and that, that sort of cycle. And so I, w- I want to think in terms of this conversation of how the church responds to a culture who's, who's asking questions about homosexuality and, and how we are to engage with a culture. Um, and, and I want to say also at the top, there are, I'm, I'm going to end this this discussion with uh, the nuance of relationship because uh, there there's so much here that is that is different for every situation every relationship that you are engaged with that you are involved with with, with your own with your own situation how you believe about what what you believe scripture to say the authority that you give to scripture the authority that your friends give to Scripture, the authority that the people that are around you give to Scripture. Because our presence here and engagement here 
presupposes that Scripture has authority to speak to us. Not everyone has that same presupposition. And so we need to, we need to understand culture. We need to understand our relationships. We need to, to press into these things. Um, so let's, uh, again, uh, probably be a, a bit redundant, but um, let's make sure we know what we're talking about. When we say the gospel is on top, um, we say that all that we are and all that we do and how we engage culture inside and outside of the church, pick that up, how we engage culture inside the church and how we engage culture outside the church um, is informed and motivated by the gospel. Um, and I want to put three passages in front of us about what the, what the gospel is. The first one, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is uh, a passage that Dave has already quoted tonight. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Um, I've heard pastors say, well, then that leaves us out. We're out. And this is, here, here's what is, what is heard by the culture that's outside of the church. That this is what you're calling me. The gay person that you are engaged with, whether it's coming out of your mouth or not, whether it's coming out of, out of your unspoken word or not, this is what's being heard. I'm out of your club. And, and this is like, has, has that idea, that notion has got to drive us to our knees to ask for forgiveness. And it's got to drive us to our knees to pray that, that a supernatural God would do a supernatural thing. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. When, when God tells you not to be deceived, the chances are you are currently deceived. God doesn't tell undeceived people to not be deceived. Because they're not deceived. Um, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Big long list of people included in there are uh, sexually immoral, um, and we all are there. Uh, it's the Greek word porneia. We get pornography from that word. It is sex in any capacity outside of the context of marriage. Um, in any capacity. Not the physical act, but the thought or the immediate lust that you chase away. You're all there. Every one of you. Uh, nor idolaters. This is the one that we're, we're all here. We're, do, do, we need to spend, do I need to spend time talking about how we're idolaters? That we want stuff for us more than we want what God wants for us? We place stuff in front of God all the time. And then the rest of those things there. But verse 11 is, is the gospel. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. No matter what you're dealing with from a culture standpoint, if it's homosexuality or, or something else. We're talking about homosexuality because it's like all anybody wants to talk about these days, especially in, in light of the church and the church's response and gay marriage and all these things. We're talking about that because of this. But ultimately, we all start from a similar place. 
And that place that we start from when we're engaging the gospel is we don't fit. We're not a part of this club. Such were some of you. But look at, look at the, the tense of the verbs here. Look at them. Do you, do you see the tense of the verbs? Talking to you. Don't be deceived because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived. Just like we want to lob stones at people. How, how does this, like, I'm getting filled with angst here because the, Rick and the church is really, really bad at this. I'm right and you're wrong. Like, chances are you're really bad at it. I'm right and you're wrong. And this is the, the heart of the gospel is we all start from the same place. We're all beggars, every one of us. And the only thing that we have that's of any significance or any value to offer anyone, including ourselves, is Jesus. And if we start from that position, what is, how does it change your neighbor who's gay? Or the kid you used to know who you heard about on Facebook who came out is gay. How, how, does, it, how does that, knowing that, that you and such were some of you, and the only difference in you is Jesus, how does that change how you empathize there? I hope a lot. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see your role there? Do you see, like, all right, let, let's, let's talk, let's... I'm going to ask a couple of non-rhetorical questions. Let's look at these, these verbs and who you were and, and who the actor, actor was. Okay. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So, what motivates God here in this passage? What's that? Mercy? Yeah, that's one thing. Love. Love and mercy. Like, okay, forget that we're studying Ephesians chapter 2. And think about we're studying how to engage a culture who is tired of hearing what the church has to say about gayness. What is it about you that makes you able to speak to that person? Think about who you were before Christ. And think about who you are after Christ and, and what motivated you, what motivated God. It's the love that's within him. You, you see in how, how this has to change how we engage the culture? And it's the gospel that is changing us. So what, what, is, what is your response? What is your activity in this verse? Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 and, and 13. What, what, are, what are you doing here in this verse? What is the non-God person doing here? 
What did, what did you do as a part of this salvation? Nothing. What did God do? Everything. The gospel has, has got to be on top. We were far off and now we brought near because of the blood of Christ. Psalm 86.5 This is our God. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. This is the gospel. Um, John Ryan, who, by the way, will be here for the next... uh, John and his wife, Fran, are going to be talking about parenting in the next uh, Dinner in Theology in a month. A little mini commercial in the middle of this. Um, John said this, wrote this one time, uh, when the gospel is the center of a body of Christ, the church will grow up in the gospel of Jesus and live out in life in the midst, and live out this life in the midst of the culture around it. The cycle begins and continues with men, women, boys, and girls being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Homosexuality is, is the topic, but this whole thing is about the gospel. And learning to apply it to our hearts in such a way that it changes us and then we engage culture with how we've been changed. Um, So, uh, talk about a couple of mix-ups. When we put the culture on top, we get something called syncretism. Um, And let's define syncretism as this. Syncretism is the prevailing opinion of the culture dictates the message that we proclaim. And we become syncretistic. We act, think, and believe the way the culture tells us to act, think, and believe. Our desire is to be liked and accepted by the culture that moves us. Our desire to be liked and accepted by culture moves us. You following that? So basically, whichever way the wind is blowing, that's what we think. That's the way that we believe when we put the culture on top. Go back to our triangle with the gospel on top and, and culture over here and church over here and we twist it and culture's on top. Culture becomes God. We bow to culture. Whatever culture is telling us to believe, we believe. This is the church in San Francisco that Dave was talking about. It is God. It tells us what to believe. And everywhere in us, what we have that's God placed in us is this fervent desire to be loved and accepted. We all have it. And when we put the the culture on top, the culture tells us how to love and accept people and and how we are to love and accept people. And this is syncretism. Um, Syncretism starts with a good desire to be culturally relevant and ends with the truth of Scripture being supplanted. What the culture says or what my own sinful nature says is going to be the God and I'm going to do what it says. And so our desire to be culturally relevant, and we do, that's, that's a good thing. We desire as a church to be culturally relevant. But when we swing too far, the truth of the gospel and the truth of Scripture is supplanted. Um, church on top is something called sectarianism. Sectarianism. And it says, the prevailing opinion of the religious 
dictates the message that we proclaim. So instead of the prevailing thought of the culture dictating, now it's the prevailing thought of the religious that dictates the message that we proclaim. We act, think, and believe the way church culture tells us to act, think, and believe. Our desire to be liked and accepted by the church culture moves us. So we put the church on top and we start talking about how'd you vote this year? We put the the church on top and we start talking about that skirt's a little too short. We put the the church on top and we start talking about you're gay, you're not welcome here. Put the church culture on top and we become our own bubble. And I think this church and the people that call this church their home, we can easily see that in other churches. The big established churches that have been around for a long time that wear suits and ties, that's them and not us. But I, I believe that we are, we're in a, we do this unwittingly and unknowingly, and we sit in a, a, a pot of water that's beginning to boil, and we never really realize that it's boiling, and now we're dead. Um, because it's really important for us it's really important for me to be liked and accepted by church people. Maybe a different set of church people than it used to be, but still it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's just a different set of people prevailing upon my opinions. I had a conversation with a, a, an old friend this week um, and like, I, I think the conversation, I mean, didn't wind up being very beneficial and whatever, but one thing that it was beneficial was, is that I, I kind of realized that I'm, I'm completely out of touch with people who are engaged in, he used the phrase 20 times, engaged in the queer community. Um, I'm completely out of touch. I have, I have no idea what they wrestle with. And in a minute, I'll tell you about a specific instance that, that made me realize that. Um, more about sectarianism. Darren Patrick says, The sectarian church promotes the belief that the culture is an enemy that falls outside of the scope of God's redemptive work. Sectarianism starts with a desire to be biblically faithful, a good desire to be biblically faithful, and ends with a church that is ignorant of the culture and ineffective in its mission. Uh, In syncretism, the culture is right, and anything that goes against culture is not acceptable. In sectarianism, obedience is the way to God and anything that goes against the church is not acceptable. In the gospel, we start from a similar place 
as beggars and our obedience and our engagement with culture and the church flow from love, work, and acceptance of Jesus. Um, I want to end with this, uh, with this idea. Uh, you guys remember, some of you probably do remember, some of you have, have forgotten, but might remember when I tell you. Um, after Michael Brown happened uh, a year ago, I got uh, a phone call from a Canadian radio station. And they said, we want a pastor who lives in Ferguson to come on the radio and talk. Um, the night before this had happened, I was at uh, a big church-wide event. Uh, several churches in the North County area gathered together just to simply pray. And each several, there were six or seven pastors came up and talked for five or ten minutes and then led the people that were there in some prayer. There was five, six hundred people there, uh, black and white. It was, it was a great night. Some of you guys might have even been at this event. So I, I was able to talk for a few minutes there. And in my talk, I confessed racism. Um, that there's racism in my heart, and I hate it, and there's bias in me, and uh, it was really, really well received. I had several different generations and several different races come up to me afterwards and say, thank you for saying that. It was good. It led to some good prayer time individually. So we would say that, and then people would break into prayer. It was great. Excellent day. The next day, 5 a.m., I'm on the radio in Canada. Um with uh, two other activists, one from the Ferguson area and one from like Kirkwood uh, who had been at a bunch of the protests. And I said almost word for word the exact same thing. And uh, the, the male of the two activists like stopped and like berated me on the air. And I said, it, the, the whole thing just completely got away. And I was like, that's not what I'm really saying. I tried to backtrack and try to try to respin it to, to say what I was meaning to say. Um, when I said racism, he, he heard, you hate me. Uh, it's not what I intended to communicate. So it was bad. Hung up the phone, walk inside, take a shower, getting ready to go to work. And my phone starts going, bzz, 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 bzz. and I look at it and Twitter is just blowing up. Um, and it's the racist pastor. Um, some of you guys probably remember that, right? This is a racist pastor. Here's his church. Here's his church website. Don't go to this church. How can this man proclaim to be a man of God and, and spew racism? And that was, like, extremely hurtful to me. I, like... Like, I'm not going to work today. And I texted friends. I texted family. And uh, it, was, it was terrible. I was extremely vulnerable, willing to, to put myself out there and get slapped around and get hurt. And somebody did. Because they, they misunderstood who I was and what I was trying to say. And it was hard. And you guys, who remembers that? Some of you guys remember that, right? It was, it was terrible. And now, even to this day, maybe every three or four weeks, I'll go back into my Twitter archives and read it and just relive the hurt. Because I was misunderstood. And I, I didn't, like, I, I spoke wrongly. And 
and there was something, maybe there's something, like there were, I spent a long time thinking there was something wrong with me. Maybe this guy is right. Maybe I am, have no business being a pastor. And as I was sitting this week at the city garden talking to my gay friend, this, I remembered that time and that day because he was talking about being extremely vulnerable and then being slapped and destroyed and ripped apart. Mine lasted about six hours. His last every moment of every day. And really, I think in that moment for the first time, I could connect ever so briefly with his struggle. And, and the, the analogy breaks down, and it's not a perfect analogy, but the fact of the matter is, for those of you who just raised your hand and remembered walking through that with me and, and the hurt that was there, I think you can maybe connect a little bit with that. But we're, and, and this is, like my friend can't escape it. And his response has been, if this is going to cause me pain, engaging with church people, or even engaging with the Bible, I'd really rather just not deal with the pain. I'm going to go hang out with these people who won't make me think about my pain. And, and I can, from, from this side of it, I can see, dude, that's wrong. Don't. Don't take the easy way. But from the other side, in the middle of that, when I was in my bedroom, listening to my phone, literally, once a second, bzz, new tweet, bzz, new tweet, bzz, new tweet, slamming me, I can... I can relate. I don't... I'd really rather not take a stand anymore. I'd really rather not confess my... the sin that's in me. I'd rather just forget about it because it's toxic. It is. It's toxic. So I, I, I desperately want us to learn to proclaim the gospel into love. Um... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but, not, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. And kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Man, I've read this several times. Pardon me while I pause and take that last one in. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
Um, subtle nuance of relationships. This is what I want to end our, this part of the conversation with. Uh, the subtle nuance of relationships. First, seek to understand. In light of the Twitter vulnerability that I talked about, seek to understand who people are and where they are. And then this topic brings about the grayest of gray areas. Dave and I, if we, we met on Friday to kind of talk through who was going to do what and all this. And, and we, we have three very particular friends who we know very well. And each one of them, at least at some point in their life, created or, or proclaimed and demonstrated a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And now each one of them, to varying degrees, is abandoning that in some capacity for a gay lifestyle. And each one of them is doing that in a different way. And each one of their pasts change how they respond to their future in a different way. Um, Gray areas include an interpretation of Scripture. We can bring 1 Corinthians, we can bring Romans, we can bring Old Testament stuff to play. And gray area includes the way that you or I or other people sitting around you or, or your neighbors would interpret Scripture. Another gray area is the authority of Scripture. I willingly place myself, hear me, I willingly place myself under the authority of Scripture. If Scripture says, do this, it's my desire to do this. If Scripture says, don't do this, it's my desire to not do this. You follow? Most of us in this room willingly place ourselves under the authority of Scripture. Most of the people that we engage with in culture do not willingly place themselves under the authority of Scripture. Therefore, something supernatural has to happen to change them. Because if, if our desire for someone to be freed from their homosexuality, and I, that's, that's a hateful, resentful phrase. I, I'm sorry that I said it. And, but if, if, that, if the truth of that, if they want to be, if we want them to not act on their homosexual desires because of what the Bible says, and they're not willing to say, I submit to the authority of the Bible, what's the point? We're, we're arguing with, it's, it's, it's just nonsense to them. We've got to start someplace else. And the someplace else is a supernatural act to happen in their life. And Scripture commands us love. And the gray area is like, it's easy for me to stand up here and talk about that. But it's hard for me to learn how to engage my friend who says, I don't want anything to do with the Bible anymore because it's toxic to me. How do I, I don't know how to engage that. And, and if you do, come talk to me. I'd love to hear your wonderful solution. But chances are, the only way is God to intervene. Interpretation of Scripture, authority of Scripture, the application of both of those. You and I could interpret Scripture the exact same way and apply it differently. Life experience is a gray area. What's brought the Rick's generation or, or Charlie's generation or, or Rick's generation, their life experience is different than mine. 
And that's different than Travis's, which will be different from Cooper's. And the world that we grew up in and the way that we lived is different and creates a gray area for us. And as such, changes the way we engage people. And this is the thing that, that brought tears in Dave when he talked about his aunt and his girlfriend. Because this is a real person. And the, the point of what I wanted to, when I talked this morning about James and him getting knocked off of the roof and hit with a rock and then beaten the head with a stick, was the idea was to personify James and we could see him as a real human being who experienced a very real physical pain when he, his bones broke, when he fell off of the roof, when he got hit by rocks. And this is a real person. And these are real people that wrestle with these real things. And what, how do they deal with this desire to be with another guy? How do they, how do they wrestle with that? In the, in the same real sense that I want you to see my wanting to curl up in a ball in my bedroom when Twitter was blowing up. This is a real wrestling match, a real struggle with real people. And there's so many gray areas and so many life experiences that bring us to this. We also have a syncretistic past or a sectarian past. But more than anything, every one of us, every single one of us, have a God-placed desire to be loved and accepted exactly how we are. Right? Do you guys have a, this deep longing to know and be known and loved anyway? Like, I love all of you, but I don't love you like I love my wife because I have complete acceptance for her, with, from her, and she has it for me. And we, this, there's a deep longing within us. And so I, I desperately want of my own heart and of our hearts to love people well and to understand and appreciate the subtle nuance of relationship. Um, I want to pray and then we're going to close up with, with a, a quick time of some, some Q&A. Uh, God, thanks for, uh, thanks for Jesus. Father, I pray that you would supernaturally engage us. God, change our hearts where they need to be changed. Affirm us where we need to be affirmed. God, may we be culturally relevant and biblically faithful. May we be aware continually of your gospel. May we not be trapped in a safe religious bubble even when we think we aren't. God, just be sovereign. Be good. And make us aware of when you are. Thank you for Jesus.
Oh, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So there were several uh, questions that uh, either we just, that kind of came up, um, whether it be in conversation um, with some of you or others in the room, not in the room, um, or uh, online. And so uh, we picked out a few uh, just to try to address a bit. And so um, the first one is this. Um, From God's perspective, is there a difference between the sins of homosexuality, adultery, and greed? Um, I think that um, the way I would answer that question, um, I think from a a cross standpoint, um, from the standpoint of uh, Christ's ability to pay for those sins, um, absolutely not. Um, I don't think that there's one sin that separates us from God um, more than another. Um, I don't think that there's... Uh, and, and it's easy, because I love the question how it's phrased, like, from God's perspective. Because I think that's key, because from our perspective, as I was talking about earlier, you have the acceptable sins and you have the unacceptable sins. And we assume that the unacceptable sins of our culture are the unacceptable sins of God. You know, so that God hates fags, um, reality, um, then becomes, well, that just must be... God's, God's view, when that just becomes this, you know, unacceptable sins of culture. Um, I would say the, all, all three of those, he says in the question, or the, or the question there, what is it? Uh, homosexuality, adultery. Homosexuality, adultery, and greed. They're all on the list in 1 Corinthians 6 that I read and, and Dave read. They're all three in that list. Um, and none of, none of those who practice those things will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, and such were some of you. And that's... So ultimately, no, there's, there's, there's really no difference there. And, and we likely have greed that goes unchecked in our lives every day. Um, yeah. There's, there's a pretty good chance that there's somebody who lives within a mile of you or three blocks of you who's really hungry right now. There's nobody that's going to hold a dinner in theology on greed. We should do that. Maybe next time. I mean, seriously, we got a whole bunch of food back there. That sucks. Um, I wish I had a thought of that. It makes me feel bad about myself. Go eat. No, it makes me feel bad about... Yeah, whatever. Um, another true. one... Another really gets to the heart of, like, what does it look like for a person um, who wants to be a part of the church but willfully would say, I'm, I want to participate in a, in a, in a gay lifestyle? Um, so if a Christian is practicing homosexuality or other sexual sins, should they be excommunicated like the man in 1 Corinthians 5? Rick, you want to give background on that? Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 5. What this question is talking about uh, says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. 
for man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn than to let him who has done let him who has done this be removed from among you? So basically, in the first Corinthian church, in the Corinthian church, there was someone who was having sex with his dad's wife. And uh, Paul's telling them to excommunicate that person, put him out of the church. Um, I think there's a little bit of a difference here um, in that this subtle phrase, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, comma, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Um, So this is a a little bit different than the practice of homosexuality uh, because it is tolerated by the pagans. Um, But, and my answer, I I think what the the heart of this question is getting to is, would a gay person be welcome to come to the church here and engage? um, My friend who I talked about in my talk a minute ago asked me that question a year ago. And I said, I don't know. I think so, but I don't know. I think I would probably be okay, but I'm not sure about the rest of the people and I'm not sure how, what you would feel or experience. I don't know. Well, I think one of the, the defining mark of a Christian um, is, is repentance. Um, and I think that the, where, where there's a will, and, and I say repentance um, because it's not like I don't, struggle, or I don't have um, a desire that's contrary to the things of God, because all of us do, right? Um, And so, I mean, I would say absolutely welcome. Um, Like, come on, let's talk, let's engage, let's have conversation about who God is and what he's done, um, and let's journey with them, um, and let's see what God does, and let's see what what you choose. Um, because I think there comes a point, um, it, like the, the interesting, the hard thing, and, I, and the hard struggle with what the Bible calls church discipline is this picture of like, at what point do you begin to protect the church um, from believers who would argue that I can persist in my sin? Now, where the, where the struggle comes up is... Um, the, the, around the idea of repentance. Because we all struggle in sin. And we all recognize that God's desire and God's design is that I not live in certain realities and pursue certain things. And, um, and so where there's a willingness and a desire to wrestle and struggle and fight, um, and, I, and I'll be honest, for all of us, there's even seasons where we don't fight. For all of us, there's even seasons where it's like, doing it, right? Like when David, like David commits adultery, like do you know in those moments, like that's the defining mark of a believer. Like that's, that's, that, that segment of his life. Um, no, it's not the defining mark of a believer. Like what do you do with that? Um, and so the way I view that question, the way I view that situation is let's talk around the reality of, the nature and character of God and what the identity of a Christian is and, and are we willing to put everything on the table? 
right? Including sexual struggles, um, materialism, everything on the table, and say, God, this is yours. Um, where, where I think it, where I would begin to have a hard time would be if there was someone that says, this is contrary to Scripture and who God is, but I'm doing it. Okay, that's where the Bible then says, treat them like an unbeliever. Well, what do you do, what do, you do with an unbeliever? You speak the gospel to them. Right? Like, do we want unbelievers in our church? Yeah. So like, there, there's, a, there's a whole lot more we could go into about still a lot of that. But um, I, mean, I would say, like, absolutely. Um, let's pursue the Lord. But there's going to come a point where we're going to say, the call of a Christian, according to Luke 9.23, is everyone come after me must deny himself. So, like, the urges and the struggles, like, every one of us, there's a point I have to say, I've got to deny myself. I can't have that. I can't do that. Or I need to confess I, I didn't deny myself. Like there's a wrestling. Um, and the line in every situation is, is unique and different. So I don't, you can't just black and white answer it. Um, Would you attend a gay wedding? You so. chose this one. Yeah, you want to answer this one. Would you attend the gay wedding of a friend? Um, before I answer, I want to ask. I want to ask you guys by by a raise of hands. Is that fair? You guys mad at me, Travis Wood? All right, all right. I'm raising my hand. By the way, that would. Um, here's why. Um, one is that I've never gone to a wedding and thought to myself as I went to the wedding, I am here to affirm my agreement with this marriage. You follow that? You understand what I'm trying to say? I've never said to myself, because I'm going to this wedding, I'm affirming this. I will say that I have um, two very, very close relationships um, whose weddings I did not agree with. I did not think that they were biblically being married. One of them asked me to perform the wedding, and I said no, and here's why. Um, I no longer have a relationship with him, someone that was uh, at one point among my closest friends. Uh, But I went to that wedding, and I don't know that there's much difference there. Um, Both of these cases were from... uh, there was what, what I believe to be a biblically uh, unsanctioned divorce and a biblically unsanctioned remarriage. And as such, I did not agree that I couldn't stand before God and proclaim that I officiated unifying these, these two. And as a result, I didn't, didn't perform the wedding. But I went to the wedding. Now, there is a... There's some nuance to that of celebrating like do I celebrate with this person do I celebrate with what I believe to be a poor decision that's 
some subtle nuance that I'd really rather have an individual conversation with, that person. But I would go to their wedding and I would have a good time if I could. Uh, and be very frank and forthright with that person to say, look, I don't, don't agree, but I love you. So here I am. Um, much the same that I would for someone who is remarrying based on a, a not biblical divorce. It's my thought. Um, yeah, so I, I, honestly, I don't know that I've given a ton, a ton of thought to it. Um, the, uh, the religious kid in me um, would rear up and say no. Um, the gospel work that God's doing in my heart um, would lead me towards yes. Um, because of the fact that... Um, I don't know, that, I think... I think that, so I, I am still wrestling with the question, but I think that you have to think through, like, what Rick said. Is your presence there, like, celebrating with them? Like, Sam Alvary addresses this question in the back of his book. Rick doesn't like his answer, but, um, uh, but what he's ta- what you'll see if you read it, um, what he's talking about is, can you go, everyone's like, I'm going to read it now, and you're not going to hear it. He'll read his, don't mm. listen to what I'm saying, but I'm going to go ahead and mm. say it, since I'm being recorded. Um, <laughs> Somebody here, somebody take the mic and read it, and that'll be my answer. No, that won't be my answer. Um, is, can, like, can you uh, still uphold the truth of the gospel and the reality of, of God's design for marriage um, and be there? Um, and, and I think that really what I love about what Sam Alberry says is how do you preserve the relationship? Because by saying no, sorry, I can't come, um, like you're probably going to cut off that relationship um, and probably remove any chance of having any sense of respect um, that that person would have for you where you could be, be a voice in their life um, to transformation and to change. And so, um, and so I think that's the struggle to wrestle with. Um, and that's where, I, I mean, uh, I like what Rick says about, um, man, have conversation and say, I'm going to come because I love you. I don't agree. Here's why I don't agree. Um, yeah, I mean, some people probably don't like that answer. I don't know. You like that answer? You like that answer? You're asleep. <laughs> Read Sam Albers. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I want to, there's one other question I just want to, I want to mention real quick and close with this. It was the question regarding what, like, why is the church kind of losing this argument um, or losing, losing ground on this conversation? Um, two things, Rick and I were talking about this idea that um, really that because we pursue idolatry. So you look at the world and the world's going to say, I'm my own God. I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue. Um, and so um, they're not interested. The, the other thing that, and where I think is really our heart and what we've tried to communicate tonight is that um, the church is losing the conversation because it's not a conversation. It's a, uh, here's what God says, 
listen. Stake in the ground. Um, don't get near me because you're going get, to get me, you know, gross. Um, and that's where <laughs> I think that we need to grow as the church in the conversation. Um, in, uh, yeah, and in being people's lives. And, um, and I think the church's response is very fearful. Like, what's going to happen? Um, and I don't, I don't think that's Jesus' heart. To, re- to live in fear. Um, in fact, he commands against that. But, um, and so I think if we're to progress as people to be a church that's loving to everybody, truth and grace, um, then we need to be a people that are, that one of the best ways we can show the gospel is through listening. And so I think a conversation has to be two-way. I want to add real quick to that. If the church is losing the conversation, and if it completely loses the conversation, we won't be in a worse place than the world was in the biblical times because their perversion was made ours look like the church lady. And God still moved. I want to read this passage and then I'm going to close in prayer. We're out of time. Um, this is from the end of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Other places in Scripture, it says we see as through a, as through a mirror dimly. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a, in a mirror dimly. There it is. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall see fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for this time and your word. God, we just trust you. And we ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit um, to be a people that aren't afraid. To be a people that aren't afraid to to have open, loving arms and saying, come on, let's, let's talk. And be people that aren't afraid to um, engage with minority culture, engage with the hurting. Um, God, would you fill us with your spirit? And would you remove our religious hearts Would you give us gospel hearts to be the people of God? And so, God, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Mm